I'm going to be reading a passage out of Mark's gospel today. There is a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And the cheat sheet page number, for those of you who are needing it, is 1575. <clears throat> um, I should say that um, there was an announcement I didn't cover, which is who the new um, elder officers are. This is important because they make up the executive committee of the elders, which make a lot of decisions so that the elders don't have to make every little decision. And so you might want to know who they are. Um, the treasurer, now, because you guys know Jeff Farquhar, those, those of you who go here know Jeff Farquhar has been our stalwart treasurer guy, dude, for a while and just all kinds of credibility. And so um, he, since he's irreplaceable, we got uh, Walt Pepler to take his position. <laughs> That's exactly how Walt would have said it and did in our meeting. So uh, Walt is going to be the new treasurer. Um, Rick Zinda, who uh, was the vice chair of the elder board, is going to be the secretary. Andy Flotmeyer is moving into the, that vice chair position and um, still, still the champion and will, who will be uh, the chair for the next year is going to be Greg Walters. So if you know anything about that and are interested in who's what, there's that information for you. Also, um, it's commonly, it's a common known thing in all forms of public speaking not to apologize for a talk before you give it. But I always find it more awkward to apologize at the end when I've been terrible. So um, uh, I fear for this sermon. So do listen with a, um, an eye and ear not needing polish and pizzazz, but for what God says in the scripture that I can deliver that way, okay? Can we agree on that? So this is Mark chapter 12, <clears throat> starting in verse 13, and I'm going to read through till probably just 27 for this morning. Later they, meaning the elders the chief, and the chief priests, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You, are not, you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay set taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. And it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, for those of you who are planning on closing your Bibles, before you do that, okay, I want you to see that the next line where it says, verse 28, it says the greatest commandment. So uh, 
what happens in this next, so the first passage, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians. The second passage, it's the Sadducees. And then in this next one, it says one of the teachers of the law. It, that's, the, that's the academic Israel trifecta right there, okay? Those are the three academic, in power, have authority groups of teachers. And then at the end of that passage in verse 35, Jesus asks a question, okay? So this section in Mark 12 is all about who is the teacher, whole section, this is what it's about. Who's the teacher? Is it the Pharisees, who are professional teachers? Is it the Sadducees, who are professional teachers? Or is it the teachers of the law who, based on their name you would think, are professional teachers? Or is it Jesus? And the whole point of this passage is all three of those groups take a shot at asking Jesus a completely unanswerable question. At which point Jesus then answers that unanswerable question— and then asks them one they can't answer. That's the drama here. Now we're going to split it into two weeks, okay? So I'm going to do the first two this week and the second two next week, okay? Does that sound great? Yes. Awesome. Also, because this is what the section is about, you may not find these two next sermons like really deeply personally encouraging and so forth because that's just not the stuff being handled here. These are more about who Jesus is and how we mentally go astray and what's wrong with how our hearts and our minds work together. So these sermons will be on that stuff, okay? So if you want like a really feely sermon, um, you can go to another church because you may—if if you know me, it's a problem. Um, I'm just—I don't want you to do that. I'm just saying, realistically. And then secondly, um, we'll get to that because once we get into Jesus going to the cross, there's going to be a lot of that. There's going to be a lot of Jesus identifying with our pain, so hang in there. But one of the things we're going to realize today is a lot of our pain self-inflicted. Hmm. So there. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I just don't have any tact. Um, in 2005, uh, there was a book that came out called True Enough. Learning to Live in a Post-Vax Society by uh, Farhad Manju. Um, and, and here's the—this is the Amazon blurb, par, part of the Amazon blurb for this book. In 2005, Stephen Colbert cap catapulted the word truthiness, a quality of an idea feeling true without any evidence backing it up, into the public consciousness. Salon blogger Manju expands upon this concept in his perspective— perceptive analysis of the status of truth in the digital age, critiquing a world in which competing versions of truth vie for our attention. Driven by research and study, the book relies on abstract psychological and sociological concepts such as selective exposure and peripheral processing. Through these—oh, though these are fleshed out with examples from American history, politics, and media. Right? Translation, this book has truthiness. <laughs> um, but— it is an important concept, the whole idea of living in a post-fact society. I remember talking with somebody who worked in Washington, D.C., and he said, in Washington, D.C., we had these things called true facts. Because <laughs> there are a lot of facts, and some of them are even true, right? And one of the things we need to recognize is that there's, there's two factors to this fundamental problem that we live in a post-fact or world that's more full of truthiness than truth. One of them is just a fundamental concept of the digital age. There is just more information flying at us than we can possibly process. It's just a fact. Um, well, it's a, it's a true fact. And— um, <clears throat> 
What that means is we can't think about everything we're exposed to. What that means is what happens then is, unless we're very deliberate to like try to engage as much as possible, and it happens to everybody some, is that we absorb more than we think about. We don't know where it came from, who said it, how well researched it is. We just sort of know some things are true and some things aren't. And then when we hear people say stuff, it sounds plausible or implausible. And because the human mind doesn't work well being kind of in confusion, we tend to naturally go through the psychological process of convincing ourselves that the things we know are really true and we're sure about, and people that don't believe in the stuff we've absorbed must just not be educated. And it's, it's so tenuous that we, we, we have to double down on the thing, and it makes us so interested in the things we think we know that we really just absorbed, that it really becomes our, our ideological identity. So a great example of this is when people have political arguments, right? So people on a, like, let's say the liberal side of things, there are certain sort of facts out there that are like everybody knows, right? And you talk to a conservative and they just don't, they, it's like they don't know it. It's like they're in total denial about these fundamental facts about the corruption of conservative people and that kind of thing. And it's, and it's, that's just, you're just nuts. And then, this, but it's the exact same phenomenon the other way. The conservatives are all having coffee going, those liberal people are just crazy. Like, they just, it's like they're not connected to reality. They don't want to know. Well, it's, listen, have you ever had conversations with people that have really, really strong political opinions? It's, it, it usually, when you drill, you don't find much. You just say, well, how do you, how do you know that's right? How do you know that's right? Just ask anybody who has really strong political opinions, how do you know that's right five times? And if their head doesn't explode, <laughs> then you may be going somewhere. It's possible. And those, and those people, if they really know what's going on, nothing else in their life is going right because they spend all their time on the internet. Okay, that's generally, it's one of those two. And it's, it's just because politics is one of those concepts, one of those things where the truth is so veiled by layers and layers and layers of media and bureaucracy and distance and difficulty getting at things and so on and people telling half-truths and that it's incredibly difficult to get at true facts. Incredibly difficult. And it's even harder to get at facts that mean anything. You can get a lot of facts, but it's hard to get any facts that you can triangulate into something that means something. And we all, deep down, we all really know that. But we don't want to really believe it. We want to believe the fact that, gosh, we like George W. Bush's, how he looked at the camera better than Gore. And so dang it, those Republicans must be better people. Or vice versa. You know? We just, it's frustrating. It's, but here's, things are going by so fast. We don't know what are facts. We don't have time. So what do we do? We just grab what we can use. Whatever we can use, we grab. And Often, and, and how do we know what we're going to be able to use in the future? We don't know. So we just grab stuff that fits what we already think, right? And so we're just grabbing stuff. And so we recognize we don't have enough time because the stream is moving so fast to worry about truth. So we just worry about what we want. And if you look around, what, what do people tend to focus on? They tend to make, they tend to focus on truths that fit goals, right? This is what I want. So... Here, so, for example, how many people have you met that the only parts of the Bible they know anything about are the parts they think are problematic? So they know what Paul says about uh, the role of women in 1 Timothy 2, right? They know about 
one or two like alleged contradictions that if you don't look at the context, they look like the Bible contradicts itself. They know that in the Old Testament, God sent the Israelites to kill like a whole people group. That's genocide, right? That can never be right, no matter what, even if God told you to do it. And, Ab- and then Isaac, he was going to sacrifice, or Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. That's just wrong, right? It, and you ask him like, okay, name one narrative book in the Old Testament. No idea. Name a teaching of Jesus that you don't find problematic and isn't also in Buddhism. (laughs) Just one. Just one sentence. No idea, right? Why? Because if you believe in the Bible, right, the Bible is going—Jesus is going to tell you to do things you do not want to do, right? The stream is going by, so what do you grab? Right? You just grab—it's what we all do, right? I have a certain political view, so I grab certain things out of the stream, right? We want certain license and freedoms in our life. We grab certain things out of the Bible that we want, right? We, we want to be religious people and know more about the Bible than everybody else. We grab as much of that knowledge as we can so that we can identify with the fact that we know more than other people about the Bible, so somehow we must be better. This phenomenon, because the stream is moving so fast, and because people don't seem to care about what's true, they seem to care what has truthiness and can be used to get what we want. And because everybody's doing it, it just accelerates the process faster and faster and faster. Because when everybody around you is just using truthy things to, to, to slate arguments so that they can win idea plays— and you just know they're not being intellectually honest, but you know they're going to win the public, you just say, well, I just need to say whatever I need to say to get whatever I need to get. Um, now, you might be sitting there and thinking, well, Nick, you know, I, I've been in, in philosophy and literature classes where that's just, you know, post-modernity has just proved that. That's just the way it is. Nobody, nobody ever really cares about the truth. All everybody's ever done is done that. Okay, that might be true. But that's also an accelerating, self-fulfilling prophecy. The minute you tell people, well, that's just what everybody does, so you shouldn't even care, just go for it. It accelerates the process all the faster, all the faster, all the faster. And so you get a world in which truth doesn't matter, but truthiness is all that matters. And one of the things I think that emerges from this passage about Jesus is that Humanity's always been this way. It's always been this way. This isn't really merely an affect of the digital age. It's just harder to combat it mentally and emotionally because it's so accelerated. But human beings have always been fundamentally self-interested. They've always not turned towards God and turned inward towards themselves. And therefore, they've always taken from the stream, no matter how fast or how slow it was flowing, things that fit with what they wanted to do, believe, or, or be free towards. That's always been the case. And so it's very unnerving. The, and it's the more unnerving, the more you're invested in this. When Jesus comes along and goes, uh-uh. <laughs> We're going to sit down and talk about some of your assumptions. That's what we're going to do. Ready? You know, I mean, and he, so, pe- so people want to ask him questions. And in each case, the question is, una- is, is unanswerable because they've assumed in the question an, a premise, an assumption that G- that's wrong. I mean, think about this. Think about any question that anybody's ever asked you that is unanswerable. Like, it's, it's kind of like, have you stopped beating your wife? Yes, no, yeah. 
Um, I, um, I dislike the question. Pass. You know? There are certain questions that are designed to be unanswerable. And the reason they're unanswerable is because the premise you actually disagree with is hidden. Because everybody just assumes it. And so Jesus is coming along and he's not just disagreeing with you. He's going to drill down way further to something that's really cherished that you don't even talk about and nobody talks about. Everybody just has this game where we all just assume it. And he's going to go, uh-uh. Oh no. And it's going to hurt. It's going to be like a tooth drilling. This first section is pretty famous for how um, Christians historically have applied it in terms of our understanding of the church in politics, right? Give to Caesar what's Caesar is, and to God what's God's. And I'm not going to talk that much about this, but let me say a few things about it. Whoops, where am I? Okay. The first question is basically this. How can we pay taxes from God's people to an ungodly government that's putting in slavery God's people? Right? So if I'm a good Jew, and I live in Palestine, and the Romans have enslaved us, and now they want our tax money so they can be more efficient at enslaving and oppressing us, don't I have to commit one of two treasons? Either I have to commit treason by paying the taxes to Rome, in which I commit treason against the city of God. But then if I don't pay the tax, now I'm committing political treason against the city of Rome. There's a, there's, a, there's a fundamental dichotomy here. So if I say, pay the tax to Rome, I can save my life, but I'll lose my soul. If I say, keep the tax and honor God, I'll maybe save my soul, but I'm going to lose my life. How, do you, how would you answer that, Jesus? What should I do? You see, because the Herodians were the people in favor of Herod, who was put in place by the Romans, and they believed you should pay the tax, Right? The Pharisees were the pious religious people. Be like, listen, I don't care what happens to you. You got to honor God. You know? If you die, you die. You just, you don't pay the tax. You can't do it, right? Now, here's the issue. What's the hidden assumption? Logically. Not heart-hidden assumption. What's the logically hidden assumption? It's that the kingdom of God is fundamentally political, right? Right? That God needs the earthly government to be on his side for him to shepherd, love, and lead his own, pe his own people. Right? As though he needs the governor or the president or the legislature or the magistrate or the police officer or any civil or public administration for him to lead his people. That's the assumption built into that. Or the assumption that civil authority is only legitimate when it's a theocracy. That's the other assumption built into that. Civil government can only be legitimate when it's a theocracy, right? Jesus disagreed with both of those statements. Jesus believed that civil authority was in and of itself legitimate because it restrained evil, period. It restrained evil, it creates order. Generally speaking, it's fundamentally legitimate. It's always going to stink. And as Adam Smith said, there is much ruin in a nation, but it's better than chaos— and it's usually better than it would be without it. And, it. and I don't mean to be mean, but a pretty decent example of this right now can be found in North Africa. I don't know what you're hearing, but what I'm hearing from people on the ground in Egypt is that a pretty good bit of chaos is ensuing the overturning of the central government. Well, if, that there's this idea going on, well, wait a second, if we can just mob the government and the government can't stop us, 
isn't that true of the police and the jails and the army and everybody? I mean, if we just get enough people together, they're not going to shoot us because there's television cameras everywhere. And there's reports coming back from Egypt of the, the police goes out and arrests somebody. They take him to the local jail. That family just goes out and gets all their relatives and storms the jail with 160 people, sets it on fire until they let the guy go. And then they just go home. And f- what, what the Bible teaches all the way through is there's always authority. Now listen, being cynical about authority is an American pastime that will not go away, okay? And I'm generally for it, okay? I'm in the, uh, you know, I'm in that generation of like, we just distrust everybody. But the Bible all the way through says, you know, be as cynical as you like, and you should be. But you also have to recognize that somebody's got to lead. There has to be some authority because we're just as sinful as a mob as we are led, and we're actually worse. So when Jesus asks that question, it's an unanswerable question. But what you, what the answer to an unanswerable question is always not A or B. The answer is always, I disagree with the premises. I disagree with the assumptions built into that question. But you see, the interesting thing about Jesus' answer is that he doesn't answer logically. In each case, he doesn't go, okay, here's the problem with the logic of your deal, so let me just logically— No, each time he goes right at the, right at the sin. He goes right at the evil in the question, right? Because he says, listen, give me a coin, right? Bring me a denarius. They give it to him. He goes, okay, it's a coin. Whose image is on it? And whose inscription? Caesar's. Okay, so wait a second. So Caesar created this coin. Yes. He put his image on it. Yes. So out of creation and out of authority, it belongs to him. Right? If civil authority is legitimate, then fundamentally taxation is in some sense legitimate. He created the money, and now he's calling it back through the authority of his office. It's legitimate. It's legitimate. Yes, they're oppressing us. Yes, we're slaves. The tax is legitimate. Pay it. But he said, now wait a second. There is something on which, right? Now this is all implicit, but remember, he's talking to professors, okay? So you you don't say everything when you're talking to professors, right? You just, he said, he's saying, he's saying, but give to God what's God's. What does he mean? He's saying, there's something else in the world that a person in authority who creates has put his image on, right? That's what he's implying. And he's saying, it's you, right? Because they all know Genesis 3, Genesis 1 through 3, and, and all the way, and even and then in 5 it's repeated, and then in 9 it's repeated again, that it says every human being bears God's image, and you could add, and his inscription. Every human being is a coinage of God Almighty. And therefore, because he created it, and because he has authoritative control over it as the governance person in authoritative governance, he has the right to call it back to himself. And he has. And he's looking at these Herodians and these Pharisees as he's saying, you haven't given yourself to God. And he's probably pointing to the Pharisees more. You, you're coming to me and you're asking me this question like you're so pious, but really at root— you don't care. At root, you haven't given yourself to God. You are his coinage. You are his inscription. You belong to him. He created you and sent you out into the world and calls you back to himself, and you will not give yourself to him. Instead, what you've done is you've come to me to figure out if I'm useful or dangerous. That's what you've done. That's what Jesus is implying. 
And these guys are the sharpest knives in the drawers, and they get it because they're mad. Okay? Now listen, the reason this is important is because I believe this heart fallacy is rampant today among all people, especially among Westerners, especially among Americans, outside the church and inside the church. Very little difference. We judge Jesus and the truth of God not on the basis of whether or not it's true, but on the basis of whether or not we find it useful. We parent our kids this way. We say, sweetheart, God tells us not to lie. And this is important because if you lie, people won't trust you. And if they don't trust you, it'll be hard to make friends. And think life goes better for people who tell the truth. People will do business with you more. People will—you have a better chance of having a really intimate and loving relationship. If you're honest, you have a better chance of attracting somebody who's honest, which will create—I mean, life goes better when you're Christian. Translation to child, Jesus is true because Jesus is useful. Real-life application, when Jesus ceases to be useful, the gospel ceases to be true. There's this passage in Screwtape Letters where C.S. Lewis says, you know, a few centuries ago, human beings pretty much knew when a thing was proved, and they were ready to respond to the truth by changing their life. If something was true, it was true, and your life was going to have to change. He said, now we've changed all that. Of course, he's speaking from the perspective of this fake demon, right? And so what Lewis is essentially saying is he's saying, you know, we don't—we just simply do not think in categories of true and false anymore because we don't believe you can even get a true fact. We don't believe anymore you can get truth. So the idea of getting truth and then changing your life to fit the truth rather than getting truth that fits your life just doesn't make any sense to us. What Jesus is essentially saying is there is no other way. Which is one of the reasons why Jesus didn't say nor mean when he came and said, I, he didn't say, I am the truthiness. That if you grab me as I come by in the stream, you can, I'll be useful to you. He said, I am the truth. That means I'm at the basis I set all the parameters in your life has to fit me. I don't fit you. Because I'm the creator and the coiner. Think about it this way. Um, if you were going to go on vacation, and you were going to go and do a number of different things, you were going to hike, and you were going to go out to dinner, and you were going to do a bunch of different things on, your vac on a vacation. Oh, or, I'm sorry. Let, let's say you're planning a vacation. You wouldn't say, you know— I have a pair of old hiking boots, and I have a pair of running shoes, and I'm going to have 14 days off. So, baby, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hike for seven days, and we're going to run for seven days. Right? You wouldn't let the container, you wouldn't let the shoe dictate the vacation, would you? You decide what you were going to do on your vacation, and then you'd figure out how to get the footwear you were going to need to do that vacation. That's exactly the opposite of what we do in real life. We decide what we want and what we want God to be. And then we stamp a coin with the image of that God that we like. And then we think God has cash value that we can buy and spend within the world. You see, Jesus is saying the exact opposite. No, you're the coin. God coined you. You are his currency. He is the owner. He is the creator. He is the image giver. He is the owner. 
He is the truth. And then we shape our lives, shape our minds, shape our hearts, shape our families, shape our world, shape, shape the injustice that we see and the way we interact with economics, the way we understand work and the way we think of nurturing and parenting and all these things on the basis of the truth, the one who is the coiner, who's come as the authoritative teacher to tell us. Because, listen, God knew the stream was too much for us. That's why Christianity is a revelational religion. We don't derive our religion philosophically from the world. The Bible says, yeah, you can look at the stars and creation and go, wow. And you might get from that that there's a big God who does amazing things. But then God inscripturates the Bible and sends the man, Jesus Christ, to special revelations. Why? Because the stream would be too much for us. Because we needed to teach. I mean, think about this. Why didn't God send Jesus as a man directly to the cross? Why all this 33 years of hullabaloo in the middle? What's the point? Right? Partly identification as a human being, but there's this three years at the end where he teaches. Now listen, it is— Biblically ridiculous to reduce Jesus to a teacher, okay? It's ridiculous. All the way through the New Testament, all the way through the Old Testament, the Messiah and then Jesus is so much more than just a teacher. But one of the things that—you that, know what modern Americans say more than anything? I really respect Jesus as a teacher, but I don't think he's anything more than that. Which is hilariously ridiculous— because they don't like anything he taught, and they don't do anything he taught. You know? You might, you, you might, it's, you know it'd be better if you just want to be a pagan, don't want to be a Christian. Here's what you should say. I think Jesus was, is God, like absolutely God. He is the divine majesty in bodily form. I just don't think he taught anything. That would be much more consistent. Then go sleep with whoever you want, spend your money however you want, work however you want, you know, do whatever you want to because you've freed yourself from the content. It's, it's much more hypocritical to say, I like Jesus as a teacher. I just don't think he was God. Well, he taught he was God. <laughs> you know, like, what are you going to do? It's, but it's, listen, it's, it's not that, like, we have all kinds of, it, we just grab from the stream. We just grab from the stream. Unless an authoritative teacher comes in and sets down the groundwork for truth and says, okay, now grab from the stream on this basis. Not on your own basis. On this basis, I'm going to set up. Right? That I'll demonstrate through a life and a death. I'll give you a scripture, and then that will set a baseline. And then you will, that will set you up for what to grab from the stream and begin to build things. And it will free you from this nonsense a little bit. Right? Okay. Let me say one more thing about this, quickly. Um, Barnard apparently just did some research that said that the number one reason people visit churches now is not anymore that they were invited by a friend. That you, for a long time, that was the number one reason people invite church. Now that's the number two reason people visit a church. The first is personal crisis. It's the number one reason now people visit churches. Now, there's a problem inherent with that, okay? And so I'm speaking to you now if you've come out of a personal crisis or if you've brought somebody in a personal crisis or whatever. Here's, here's the problem with coming to church out of a personal crisis. Um, 
Most of the time, we come to church out of a personal crisis because we want God to do something about our crisis. Okay? That's per- isn't that perfectly logical? Perfectly reasonable? There's nothing wrong with that. God bless you, right? I mean, you, there's a problem in your life. You, you su- in some sense, you turn to God. That's great. Okay, I think God loves that. Okay, now, but here's the, here's the problem that you can end up facing. It's more than likely that God wants to use the problem to do something in you. Not do something immediately about your problem. It's, it's much more likely that in God's redemptive providence, what he wants is to use something very painful to bring you back, not so he can just take care of it so you can leave again and go, oh, isn't God's kind of nice. I'll talk to him next time I have a problem. But so that he can bring you into himself, so he can give you himself in that trouble. And then oftentimes, once that's wrong, then sometimes you'll see him working things out. But oftentimes, this, the whole purpose is for him to get a hold of you. And so if you come in, you're like, you know what? I went to that church, and you know, my husband's walking out on me, or my, my wife is sleeping with some meathead, or my kids are going nuts, and I can't believe I found pot in his drawer this another time. You know, like, whatever it is, okay? I haven't had a job in eight years. Whatever, okay? It's very easy to walk out of here and go, you know, I went to that church, and all they talked about was Jesus and God and all this kind of stuff, and there wasn't anything practical for me, and nobody did anything that could really help or— it's, and that's, that would be perfectly reasonable because you're, you came in here grabbing from the stream. But if you were to turn around and say, okay, Jesus is the authoritative teacher. Okay, Jesus, what would you say to me in this situation, in my personal crisis right now? What would you say? And, and what, what he says at the end of the chapter, just read through the rest of Mark 12. Do you know what he says at the end? The, the question he asks is, who is the Son of Man? See, all, they want to ask all these other questions. Jesus wants to say, who's the Messiah? Who's the one? Who is the one that you need? Who is the basis for everything? That's, just, that's what his question is about. Who is the one you need? It's the Messiah, the Son of Man. It's Jesus. Jesus would say, you need me. You do not need your marriage fixed first. You do not need your kid to not be wayward. You do not need your family situation to be figured out. You, do, you actually don't even need a job right now, even though you are in the midst of financial collapse. Those are all questions you want to ask based on premises he doesn't agree with. The the question Jesus wants to ask back is, who is the one? Who is the coiner? Who is that person? If you can answer that question first, that's the only time our hearts will be changed enough where we can go back to the other questions and we can actually hear the teacher's answer. Because even when we listen to teachers, friends, they're still just another stream we're grabbing from. Don't you realize this? Um, okay, we're not going to cover the second part today in case you haven't realized this yet. <clears throat> when I, one of the things that drives me crazy when I go and teach in India is the students don't disagree with me openly in class. Okay, I love to argue with students when I teach. That's why preaching is really hard for me. Like, I would much rather have an open question and answer session. Preach for 10 minutes, have an open question and answer session. I'd much rather do that. But then I'd want the question and answer session to be two hours. So, this is better. Um, they just kind of nod and take notes. And they don't understand what I'm telling them. They just go, oh yeah. Why? Because in their culture, I'm the teacher. They're the student. They're ignorant. I'm learning. Shut up and listen. Now, there's all kinds of problems that can come from that, like problems with innovation. How do you get 
who innovates, right? There's all kinds of problems with that. But one of the good things about it is they, they learn something, okay? Because you go to an average undergraduate classroom now, and what happens? You have three sentences in your lecture. <laughs> Professor so-and-so, built into that is this idea, and don't you know that in 1940, you know, like, or my iPod app says this. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, iPhone, I'm so behind. Um, there's just immediate, like, I'm not sure. There's this immediate, like, are you really the teacher? Should I really listen to you? And what we do instead is we pull from the stream. The teacher puts out a stream, we just take what we want. What can help the views we've already got? That's not what Jesus means when he's the teacher. That's not what he means. He means he is the teacher. When he says something, it's right. Period. Period. Now that, don't confuse that with me thinking that when I say something, it's right. Okay? Even though my wife might think that sometimes I fall into that fallacy. Um, that's not the point. What Jesus is saying is he's the teacher. And when he teaches, he's right. And he will set these things up. And then once he lays that groundwork, you can come back to like, okay, teacher, what the heck are we going to do about my marriage? What the heck are we going to do about my kids? What the heck are we going to do about my career path? What are we going to do about the fact that I am constantly terrified? What are we going to do with the fact that I cannot stop being anxious for one second of the day ever? Help me, what are we going to do about that? But I don't think Jesus likes to answer those questions until we're listening and we get that he's the teacher. And here's, let me give you just one more reason why I think that's important, and then we'll be done. I've got to skip to page 11 from 5, so it might take a second. Um, and that's this. Part of the point of all of these episodes is this, that we are not as clever as we think we are about life, and that our natural minds are not only not clever, but they're not truthful. You can never think with just your mind. Ever, ever, ever. You're always thinking with your mind and your heart. What you want, what you desire is always built into your logical processes. And what's always deep in our hearts is what? Our idols. Our idols. They're deep in our hearts. And we do, most of the time we don't even know they're there. We haven't confronted them. But they control us. And so we don't even realize that they therefore then control our thinking. It always, they always do. Because our heart always controls our thinking. And if our idols have control of our heart, our idols will always have control of our thinking. We cannot get free of that until we deal with this heart question. And so, um, if you have um, desires, they are going to affect, they're always going to be there when you do your thinking. Your dysfunction always going to be there when you do your thinking. If you have a need for success, it's always going to be there when you do your thinking. If you have a need to be free, I've got to be free. Nothing can impinge upon my freedom. Even if you don't know that consciously, but that's down there, listen, you can think whatever you want about Jesus, you are having that midlife crisis. You're having it. Because that idol will work its way up through your thinking, and it will, it will, it will close in around Jesus, and it will place him in a place where you can still have it. Because you have to. Because that's the deep part. And it will come out. And so we need to recognize that we have lots of questions for Jesus, but most of the questions that we as, the, as Christians and that our friends in the culture are asking about Jesus, they're not asking like he's the teacher. They're not asking like, we're not asking like he's the coin minter. 
We're asking it snidely like this. We come up and we flatter him and we go, Jesus, we know that you're a man of God and you teach the way of God with truthfulness. Can I leave my wife because I'm not in love with her anymore? Because surely it's impossible that you, a loving God, would ask me to stay with somebody I hate forever. And since you're not answering my prayer, I'm assuming that the latter part of that sentence must be right. Thank you for releasing me from this terrible vow. Right? And we do that exact same thing for how you treat your boss or your employees, right? Exact same thing about how we treat our children. Exact same thing about how we're snide and vindictive about the way we stay in the marriage rather than get out of it. I mean, there's, there's lots of ways to talk about not being honest with God when we ask him questions, right? But the point is, we tend to ask questions like the people in Mark 12. And we don't realize that the coin minter has come and he has invited us to be free of the stream at least enough so that we don't have to base our life on truthiness but we can base our life on the one who is himself the truth. He can free us from the confusion that comes from all the impossible questions we think we have because we have screwed up assumptions. He can help us face those assumptions and build a new kind of life based on his truth in a way that we can live in the wor real world as it is in a way that is grounded and in a way that is truthful, not just in terms of our logic with the world, but truthful with ourselves on a level that never existed before. And when that really happens, it won't produce the self-righteousness you're terrified it'll produce. When it really happens, it will create humility and joy and freedom. But those useful things will only happen when we recognize you cannot come to Jesus because he's useful. You can only ever come to him because he's true. Father, we pray that on this Father's Day we would turn our hearts to you and that we would recognize that you are the true one, that you, unlike us oftentimes as Father, you are the one entirely honest with yourself and with others. You are the one who parents based on what we need. You are the one who wants to pull us out of foolishness and sinfulness and self-centeredness and those things, and you want to liberate us by the truth that is in the Son of Man, Jesus. I pray right now, Father, that those who have never believed in Jesus, that you would give the grace, you would give the help necessary to live outside the stream, that they would be willing to trust you. And Father, I also pray just as much for those of us who claim with all of our conscious will that we follow you, would you give us the help we need to believe in Jesus, the authoritative teacher? Would you give us the humility and the willingness and the openness to ask questions like they're supposed to be asked because we want answers, not because we want you to give us the thing we want. Amen.